Today we're going to look we're going to look at a character sketch. We're going to look at Haman, the bad guy. And as we look at Haman, we're going to get the most vivid, the most colorful, the most intense picture in the Bible about pride. Of all the Bible, this story that we're about to read tonight is going to be the most colorful, the most vivid, the most intense picture for us to teach us what pride is and what pride does. So it's going to be fun because this is also, in my opinion, the most humorous story in all the Bible. So we'll probably laugh a little bit. We're going to look at this man, get tripped up and trapped up in his pride, and then we're also going to laugh a little bit at him. But I want to say this before we go. Pride itself is not a laughing matter. And one scholar said, you need to look at this man's life and you need to consider what it's saying about pride because it could save yours. He says, and that's not an overstatement. If you don't understand what pride is, you, you can fall. Because for instance, here's what the Bible says about pride. The Bible says pride goes before destruction and a haughty, which means arrogant, spirit goes before the fall. You've heard that verse before. It's often just paraphrased, pride goes before the fall. Um, Proverbs 16 says, the Lord detests all of the proud of heart. And James 4 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so today, as we look at Haman and his pride, we're going to see how bad pride is and what pride is. What I want to do as we study this story is learn three things about pride. Although we could talk about it for days right? I just want to learn three things. And the first thing I want to learn is what is pride? We really need to define it because it's elusive and it's hard to define. I don't know if you've thought about this or not, but it's very difficult to define. For instance, sometimes I say to my son, hey boy, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you today. I'm proud to be an American. So pride could be a good thing. So we need to define why pride is a sin and why it's a bad thing. The second thing I want to talk about is why pride is bad. And, and not good. And then the third thing I want to do is answer the question, how do we cure ourselves from pride? Or how do we protect ourselves against becoming prideful? Is anyone in here prideful? So let me just do a quick recap of our story so far, so that because we didn't talk about Esther last week. And if you're like me, you've already forgotten what happened. So real in a flash, I'm going to talk as fast as I can to get us through the whole book. The book opens up with King Xerxes the Great. He is a great and powerful god of the Persian Empire. We, we still recognize who Xerxes is today. And Xerxes is having this massive party where for 180 days, six months, where it's just drunkenness and partying, and he wants his wife to come out and trope around wearing nothing but her crown. She refuses. He excommunicates her from the palace. And then he starts this thing called the Persian Bachelor, where he's bringing all these virgins in to figure out who he's going to get to be his queen. 365 days, he gets a different virgin, and finally he chooses this girl named Esther. And we meet Esther. She's got two names. Hadessa is her Jewish name. Esther is her Persian name. And she wins. She becomes queen. And then in the next day, Mordecai overhears a plot. He overhears these two eunuchs that work in the king's palace plotting to kill him. So he tells Esther. Esther tells him. He finds out, kills them. And then they write it in their king's annuals. Remember I told you that was important. We're going to come back to it. And we're going to come back to it tonight. Then the very next scene, the very next chapter, it says Haman is promoted. Haman gets exalted to the right hand of King Xerxes. And you and I are thinking, what about Mordecai? He saved the king's life. I think he should have been exalted to the right hand position, but he wasn't. And Mordecai was upset about it too. And he refused to bow down to Haman. He refused to salute the uniform. He refused to pay homage to his office. And so Haman is burning inside of him and decides he's going to kill not just Mordecai, but all the Jewish people. 
And he doesn't know that Esther the queen is a Jew. And so he gets Xerxes to send out this postcard to the known world, all the way to Ethiopia, all the way to Greece. We're going to kill all the Jews. Go to your neighbor's house, if your neighbor's a Jew, and slaughter them and take their loot. We're going to kill the Jews on this one particular day. Now, that day hasn't happened yet. And Haman has the best day of his life last week where he gets invited by Esther to come to a dinner with no one but Haman, Xerxes, and Esther. Esther invites Haman and Xerxes to a dinner where she's going to try to convince Xerxes not to kill the Jews, and she's going to reveal that she's a Jew. But for some reason, she doesn't do it at dinner. She says, come back tomorrow, we'll have another dinner. And again, I just want you, Xerxes, and you, Haman, if you'll honor me in one more dinner. So Haman's living on top of the world. He's on his way home to tell his wife, guess what? Today, I got invited by the queen to have dinner with no one but her and the king. So here I am, surrounded by the queen and the king. I'm hot stuff. I'm big stuff. I've, I've arrived. He is so happy. But then he says, but you know what? I can't be happy because this one little punk named Mordecai still won't see how cool I am, still won't respect me. So his wife says, build a 75-foot tower and stick him on it. Kill him in front of everybody. 75 feet is the highest thing that we know in Persia at this time. He's going to lift Mordecai up on a high pole and kill him in front of everyone. And so he says, I like this idea. And he gets his servants to build him this pole. And then he wakes up the next morning and he goes straight to Xerxes' office. And that's where he is today. Haman is at Xerxes' office. And he's going to ask Xerxes for special permission to kill one Jew early. I know we've got a day set aside to kill all the Jews, but there's this one particular one who's a rub to me, and I want to kill him today. And I've already built a 75-foot tower to kill him on, and I want to do it today, and I want the world to know this is what happens when you don't honor and respect and pony up to me. That's, the, that's where we are in our story. So let's read chapter 6, and let's see from Haman and his life what we can learn about our life and particularly about humility and pride. So I'm going to read it, and we're just going to read all of chapter 6 tonight. Are you ready to be taken into this magnificently humorous story? Say yes. yes. All right, good. On that night, the king could not sleep. Again, back to this whole predestination, God is sovereign thing. Do you think this is a coincidence? Sometimes when I can't sleep, I don't think that it's a coincidence. And well, we're going to see how coincidental this is. He couldn't sleep, and so he gave orders to bring the book of the memorial deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. So if, you're, if you can't sleep, read the book of chronicles. <laughs> You'll fall asleep. I'm, I'm not even kidding. <laughs> if, you, if you get up at 2 in the morning, open up the book of chronicles, that will work every time. It's better than counting sheep. So he wants to read his chronicles, the chronicles of his kingdom. And so it was found written in those chronicles how Mordecai had told about Bigthon and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Xerxes. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for doing this? Remember, he didn't do anything for him. The king's young men who attended him looked in the books and said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, this is wrong. Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the court, outer court of the king's palace, to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had just prepared for them. And the king's young men told Haman, Haman, Haman told the king, Haman is here standing in the court. What a coincidence. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, hmm, 
Who would the king delight to honor more than me? This is so ironic, isn't it? He's coming in to ask the king, I want to kill Mordecai. And before he gets to say what's on his mind to hurry up, he can't wait to say it. King says, whoa, whoa, whoa. I want to ask you a question. What do you think I should do to the one guy that I want to delight in? And Haman's first thought, which probably would have been my first thought, is he's talking about me. So what I want to ask ourselves is what is pride? Pride, I think a good simple definition is being self-consumed, being consumed with self, always thinking about self. C.S. Lewis has an excellent quote on pride. He says, pride is ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self, which is the mark of hell, he says. I want to read that again because I think it's a good definition. Ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self, which is the mark of hell. Pride is concentrating on yourself. What do I look like? How am I doing? What do people think about me? How can I get to the top? Me, me, me. I used to know a pastor who would sing this song. He said his wife would sing it to him. Me, me, me. I love myself. There's a picture of me on my shelf. <laughs> That's pride. My wife, thankfully, does not sing that song to me, although she probably could get away with it. Here's what Timothy Keller says. Pride is endless ego calculation. It turns everything into a means to an end. So if you're concentrating always on yourself and you're calculating your own ego, the I, the E, the id, you know, you're constantly ego concentrating, then everything you do becomes a means to an end. This thing is a means to the end of glorifying me or making me happy. He goes on. Getting more respect and approval for oneself. Thus, you don't get into relationships or jobs or anything unless it makes you feel good about yourself. Am I getting the thanks that I deserve? And how am I looking when I do it? That's pride, constant ego concentration. Here's another quote. Um, I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis an absolute ton tonight. So excuse me for throwing a tons of quotes at you. And if I'm overwhelming you with all these quotes, what I promise to do is when we get this sermon online, I'll put all those quotes on there as well. Because these are good quotes from C.S. Lewis. I mean, there's no one better, right, than C.S. Lewis. So these are great quotes. I read C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, Screwtape Letters. That's where all these quotes are coming from in college. And they drastically scarred my life. These quotes are horrific. Pride gets no, I like this one, C.S. Lewis. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Haman wants to be above the rest. He wants everyone to honor him. He wants to know that he's the right-hand man of the king. He, we say that people are proud to be rich or clever or good-looking, but they're really not. He goes on, they are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or equally clever or equally good looking, then there would be nothing to be proud about. Isn't that interesting? It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Wow. So pride is unsleeping, unsmiling, never resting concentration on yourself it's constant ego calculation. You want to be the best. You're always thinking about yourself. So what I need to tell you now is there's two kinds of pride. People don't necessarily often think about this. There is 
the inferiority form and the superiority form. So most of us think of pride as the superiority form. The superiority form is I'm the best, I'm the best looking, I'm the most charming, I can do it better than you. Anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. You've heard that song before? No? Thank you. One of us have. Okay, cool. You can be on my team and we can be proud. <laughs> That's the superiority form. Always thinking of yourself as the better. But the inferior form is equally prideful. It's thinking of yourself as not being better, as being inferior. Oh, I'm ugly. Oh, no one likes me. Oh, I'll never amount to anything. Oh, I can't measure up. And that's the inferiority form of pride, and it is just as self-calculating and just as self-consumed. Does that make sense? So a proud person would say, I want to take this job because I'm the best at this job and I can do it better than anyone. An inferior proud person would say, I'll never take that job because I'm scared of failing, and if I fail, I'll look bad. Isn't it interesting? Pride can, is a really tricky thing. It can trip you up. And some people are proud and they'll take on too much and they'll say too much and they'll do too much because they think they're the best. Some people are proud and they'll never take on anything and they'll never do anything and they'll never have any friends because they think too much of themselves. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. Have you ever read, raise your hand if you've read the book Screwtape Letters a couple of us. Let me just unpack what the, that book. It's a, it's a fictional book that C.S. Lewis wrote. Fictional, because it's about two demons talking to each other. Screwtape is the senior demon, and he's writing to junior demons. A junior demon, I think. I think his name's Wormwood. He's writing to Wormwood, and he's saying, this is what you need to do to thwart the enemy. Who's the enemy of the devil? Jesus, right? Here's what you need to do to thwart Jesus. And, and so Wormwood has a patient, and the patient would be the person who's God's person, you know, Jesus person. So let's just say, for instance, the person is me. My name is Mike, and I have a little demon, and he's always tempting me, always tantalizing me, always trying to rob me of the, of the goodness that God is seeking to give me. And so in C.S. Lewis's book, Screwtape is going to write to this demon and says, here's how you can stick it to Mike. Here's how you want to trick him. Listen to this. This is fascinating to me. He says, you must conceal the real nature of humility. Let him not think of it not as self-forgetfulness, but as a low opinion of his own talents and character. The enemy, that's Jesus, wants to bring the man to a state of mind in which, listen to this, this blows me away, he could design the best cathedral in the world and know it to be the best cathedral in the world and rejoice in the fact that it's the best cathedral in the world without being any more or less or otherwise glad at having done them as if someone else had done it. He knows he created the best cathedral, but he's not more proud of that than the fact that if someone else did it, he wouldn't be proud of it. Our enemy, that's Jesus, you see, wants to turn the man's attention away from self altogether towards him and the man's neighbor. Remember, both vainglory and self-contempt equally keep the mind on the self. Both, therefore, can be the starting point for some wonderful contempt of other selves, other people, cynicism, and cruelty. Just get that man thinking bad of himself or get him thinking good of himself. It doesn't matter. You don't want him to be overly humble. You want him to be overly humble because then he's thinking about himself. And both of those can make him contempt and, 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 and cynical. Now, I know in my life I've been contempt and cynical and proud and self-contemptuous, self-depreciating. Like Eeyore, you know? No one loves me. I guess this tale would do because I don't deserve a better tale. 
hoping that someone will say, oh, he's sad, let's get him a better tail. <laughs> so if we know what pride is, then we need to know the Bible teaches us the opposite of pride is humility, right? So what is humility? Humility is pretending to not care, right? No. Humility is pretending like you're not very good. Well, you know, it's this. Stop, stop, no more. Well, I don't want to sing, but if you want me to, I will. Okay, give me the mic. That's not humility. In fact, that itself is more prideful, isn't it? You strive to be humble by putting yourself down, by pretending to be lowly, and then in the end, you're thinking more about yourself, and so you're, ex- and so you're more prideful. Let me say this. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Did you get that? It's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And so C.S. Lewis says, do not imagine if you met a truly humble person that you would ever come away from him thinking that he was humble. He will not be someone who would be always telling you how humble he is, right? Or telling you that he's nobody because that is actually a self-obsessed person. I'm nobody. No one likes me. It's okay. I don't want to be anybody. He says, all you will remember from coming away from that conversation from a truly humble person is how much he is totally interested in you. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So you you, you meet a humble person, you don't walk away and say, wow, he was really humble. What you really do is you walk away from a humble person feeling a little more proud. Because that person is interested in you and asking you questions about you and talking about you. And you're rarely even talking about themselves. Can I just tell you that when I read this in college, I was like, man, I talk about myself all the time. That's a good conversation starter for me. Hey, how you doing? Have you seen any good movies? Let me tell you all the movies I've seen. And so I bore you to tears (laughs) because I don't know how to talk about other people, but I sure know how to talk about myself. And what I've also learned growing up over the years is that the best way, and this is a trick, the best way to have conversations with people is to talk about them because people always talk about themselves. So if, so if I wanted to get to know Dan more and I'm having a hard time having a conversation with him because he's so, you know, like boring to talk to, then, then, then I would just ask him questions. So Dan, tell me your favorite color. That's a stupid, lame question, I know, but I wasn't preparing for this illustration. And um, he'll say blue, and then I'll say, well, why blue? And then he might make something up. But then, nevertheless, he's talking about himself. But if I ask him to talk about me, he's probably going to check out pretty quickly. Does that make sense? So I like what he says. Talking to a humble person, you'd walk away saying, hmm, he sure was interested in me. I am, honestly speaking, in my life, I don't know if I've ever really met truly humble people. (laughs) I could tell you the truth. I am not a truly humble person. So none of you can say, well, Michael, when I met you, I thought you were truly humble. (laughs) And if you did say that, that would sure make me feel good. So go ahead and say it if you wanted to. So this is what pride is, and the Bible says it's icky, yucky, sinful, and I think, and I may be wrong about this, but I think, by and large, we miss this, don't you? Jesus is the example of humility, and I think we miss it altogether. So that's pride. Well, let's continue in our story and see more. Let's see what happens to his pride. If this is what pride is, then let's answer the question, why is it so bad? Where are we at? Verse 7. And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, whoever this so-called man is, let me tell you what you should do. Let the first thing he says, let royal robes be brought. 
That's important. We'll come back to it in a minute. Which the king has worn. And the horse the king has ridden. On whose head the crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to the king's noble officials. And let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. And let them then, these are the officials, the head officials, lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Isn't this hilarious? He thinks that he's the guy. And so he basically says, I think you should give him a parade. <laughs> I think you should give him a parade in his name. And I think you should let him wear your clothes and ride your horse. And I think you should make an official, someone who's really high up, pull the horse and then shout in front of him, this is what it looks like to be honored and delighted in by the king. And he's thinking, that will be me. I will be wearing the king's robe. I'll be wearing a crown. I'll be sitting on a big warrior horse. And there will be some official parading me through town saying, Haman is the best. Haman is the best. Haman is the best. Does it sound like pride to you? Yes. Okay, let me ask you this question. Does it sound like something that you would like? Some people truly wouldn't like to sit on a horse. <laughs> Some people truly wouldn't like to be in public in a robe. That was supposed to be funny. <laughs> but at this time period, this would be amazing. Well, let's keep going. I want you to see the rest of the story. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robe and the horse, just as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, <laughs> who sits at the king's gate, and leave out nothing that you have mentioned. And so Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. This is hilarious to me. Haman walked in with one thing on his mind. He's, he's been thinking about it all night long. Ever, ever since he told his wife about Mordecai in the street last night, she says, get this gallow built. They built the gallow. He's, he's probably losing sleep over it. I can't wait till tomorrow I can kill that man. Then he gets to Xerxes' castle, and it just so happened that Xerxes couldn't sleep, and it just so happened that he read the Chronicles, and it just so happened that Mordecai's name happened to come up, and it just so happened that the king wanted to delight in him. And then Haman's like, don't, don't, I'm going to kill him, I'm going to kill him, I'm going to kill him. Hey, let me ask you a quick question while you're in, since you're here. No one else is here this early. You are. So let me ask you, what do you think? Oh, do this, do this, do this. And make, the, and make some official drag him through town saying, he's the best, he's the best, he's the best. Xerxes says, that's a great idea. You be the official. And you go get those things and you do it to Mordecai. And Haman's like, oh, what? I was going to kill him. And now Xerxes just exalted him as the most honored guests in town. It's probably a good thing Haman didn't get a chance to speak, right? If, same, if Haman would have walked in and said, yeah, I just have one quick business for you, no problem, just sign this for me. What is this? I want to kill a man. Oh, his name's Mordecai, no big deal. Because then he'd be in trouble. But now he walks in and there's this reversal where now he has to drag. You know what they say about pride, right? Pride goeth before the fall. And he goes in with all this arrogance, I'm going to kill him. And then, boom, he just fell the lowest, serving the highest. The, you know, he was the highest, now he's serving the lowest. Now Mordecai's the highest, and he's the lowest. It's amazing. So here's the question. Why is pride so bad? Why do Christians always make a big deal about pride? Because it's in the Bible a bunch. Why does the Bible make a big deal about pride? I mean, isn't it true that a confident person usually succeeds? The more confident you are, the better you succeed. 
The confident athlete shoots and makes the basket, right? The confident salesman makes the sale. The confident guy gets the girl, you know, gets the job. You walk in with confidence, you'll get it. You walk in with insecurity, well, hi, would you like to go out sometime? Probably not, but if you do, here's my number. It's not going to work. So isn't it true that confidence and pride sort of makes you succeed? So why is pride so bad? Well, I'll turn us back again to the Bible because the Bible always says that pride goes before the fall. Pride goes before destruction. Here's another verse. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Here's another one. Before destruction, a man's heart is arrogant, but humility comes before honor. One's pride will bring him low, but the, but the one or he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. I mean, I could go on and on and on, over and over and over again. The Bible is saying, if you're proud, you will fall. You will be destroyed. You will die. And if you're humble, you'll be exalted and you'll have wisdom. And Haman exhibits this. He was proud. He was the most proud. I mean, he built a 75-foot pole to kill another man on who wouldn't honor him. You know, who wouldn't, you know comment on his Facebook post. You know, you didn't comment on my Facebook post, so I'm going to put a 75-foot pole in the sky and kill you so that everyone will know that you're supposed to worship me and honor me. And now he's destroyed. He's, he's, he's down to the bottom. I want to ask a question. This is a discussion question. Here's the question. Um, share a story from your life when pride went before the fall. You know, like, like you just knew you could run faster, and so you ran faster, and then pff, you blew a gasket, you know? Like, oh, man, I thought I could do it. Share a story from your life when pride went before the fall. You just knew you could do it. You took the leap. Next thing you know, you're dead. Three minutes. So why is pride bad? Well, because the Bible says it's bad. Why does the Bible say it's bad? And I want to give two reasons. There's a million reasons I could give. But for the sake of time tonight, I want to give the two best reasons. And the first reason is because it's not just a sin. It's the root of all sins. And the second reason I want to give is that it's invisible. And I'll explain all these. So the first one is that it's the root of all sin. I like what C.S. Lewis says here. According to Christian teachers, he's mostly talking about Augustine, I think, the essential vice, the, the utmost evil is pride with a capital P. So unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, all of these, listen to this, are mere flea bites in comparison to pride. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. So any device that you have, pride is the one that actually pushes it and makes it what it is. For instance, greed. Greed is a bad thing, right? But pride in front of greed will make it just the most vicious thing. Lust, same thing. C.S. Lewis actually uses an example. Lust is you lust after a woman and you want to sleep with her. But pride is I lust after this woman and want to sleep with her just to prove to the world that I can and to myself that I can. And so it actually robs you of actually the lust. <laughs> you know what I mean? It robs you of what it is. It is the root of all evil. Timothy Keller says, I like this, pride is the hellish spiritual petri dish that grows all other kinds of evil in your life. Pride is the most vicious. It's not just a sin, like lust is a sin, like anger is a sin. It is the sin. The second reason why sin is bad is because it's invisible. You can't see it. By definition, if pride goes before the fall, by definition, you can't see the pride or else you wouldn't fall, <laughs> right? If, you're, if you know pride goes before the fall, then you'd be like, I'm going to run as fast as I can through this mall. 
you would might say, oh, wait, I'm being prideful, which means I'm going to fall. So I'm not going to be prideful. I'm going to back up. I'm going to slow down. I'm going to humble myself so I don't fall. And then we wouldn't fall. But instead, pride goes before the fall because pride blinds us of our own pride and makes us think we can run as fast as we can through the mall. And then we start doing it and we fall on our face. Or pride makes you think, I can tell these people off. <laughs> and then when I do, boop, I fall. Ah, oh, but if you would have been, if it wasn't, if you weren't blind to your own pride, you would have said, I think you guys are a bunch of, you know, you guys take your break. I'm just going to serve. You know what I mean? And then you would have caught yourself and you might not have fallen. Does that make sense? By definition, pride is blind. No man looks at him. I've, I've rarely heard a person say, yeah, I need you to pray for me because I am prideful. <laughs> I've got a pride problem. I've rarely even heard someone say, I've got an insecurity problem, which is, a, which is essentially a pride problem. No one, no, one see, no one says that. It's invisible. We don't see it. And it's why I can't even remember any of these instances in my life where I fell because I probably don't even realize that it was because of pride that I fell. Timothy Keller says this. I like it. Pride is the carbon monoxide of sin. It's odorless. You know how carbon monoxide works, right? It comes into your home and you can't see it and you can't smell it and you can't even taste it. You can't feel it. That's why we have carbon monoxide alarms, you know, to let you know there's carbon monoxide in your house in case the heater leaks. And what happens, I think, is it sucks the oxygen out of your, your body or your brain or something and then you die. A lot of campers will camp with that little gas camping stove, you know what I mean, in their tent to stay warm, and then they'll wake up, or they won't wake up. They just won't wake up because the carbon monoxide just kills them. It's silent. It's odorless. You don't even know it's there. You know every other time you're sinning. If you're angry, you know you're angry. If you're lusting, you know you're lusting. If you're committing adultery, I mean, no one ever says, who are you? You're not my wife. Get out of my bed. You know, we, we know when we sin in that way, but with pride, we have no idea. It just sneaks up on us. Like, what happened when you're laying on the floor? This, this quote right here, I read it in college. I remember I was in college. I was really struggling with pride because, because there's a lot of reasons. And I was reading C.S. Lewis, and this quote that I'm about to show you ruined my life. <laughs> it ruined my life. It's still ruining my life. And I want to ruin your life. <laughs> and so I'm going to share this quote with you. And I want you to hear this quote. It says this. There is no fault which makes a man more unplorable and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves than pride. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. That's the thing that I couldn't, couldn't, couldn't get out of my head ever again. The more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. In fact, if you want to find out just how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take any notice of me or shove their oar in or patronize me or show off? Does that bother you? Do you hate it when people snub you and don't pay attention to you? Do you hate it when people look down their nose at you? The more you disdain pride in others, it points to how much pride is in you. And the reason why that bothered me in college is because I was irritated with everyone. And I would always say, well, he's arrogant. Well, he just thinks he's hot stuff. Well, she just thinks she's all that. And then ever since I read that quote, it was like, do you hear yourself? I'm like, yes, I do. Shut up. <laughs> Raise your hand if this is going to ruin your life. Okay, good. <laughs> Glad to be of service. <laughs> Pride is bad because it's the, the root of all sin and because it's invisible, we don't even see it. And because we don't see it, we don't recognize it in our life and we don't know how to deal with it. So here's the last question. The, the last point I want to ask is how do we cure it? 
How do we defend ourselves against pride? How do we fight off pride so that it doesn't destroy us? Well, if we, if we barely know what it means, because it's so confusing, because if I try to be humble, I just end up being more prideful, so what do I do? And if it's invisible and odorless and I can't smell it or see it, then how, is there any hope at all for us to protect ourselves from it? Because the more I try, the more I'm just being overly humble and pretending, and the more I become more prideful. So it's, uh, how do you cure pride? Let's look at the last few verses of this, this story. Verse 12. And then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. So he went back to the place that he has always been. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh all that had happened and all his friends, everything that had happened to him. And then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish people, then you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Huh. So Zeresh and these wise men speak sort of prophecy into his life. Wait a minute. It's clear what's happening here. You're going to die. You, you have fallen. Pride goes before the fall, and you will fall before Mordecai because you've really messed things up. Your pride has gone too far. And once Xerxes finds out that Mordecai is a Jew and he delights in him, you're going to fall. And these people have no idea that Esther is a Jew. They have no idea that Esther is Mordecai's daughter. <laughs> so it's bad news for Haman. He's just walked it. He thought that he was in control and he just walked into a situation where he is completely lost. How do we fight off and cure pride. I know what you think I'm going to say. I'm a pastor. I'm a preacher. I've got a Bible. I know what you think I'm going to say, right? Here's how you defend against pride. You need to be closer to God. You need to obey God. You need to pray harder and more. <laughs> you need to try harder. You need to be gooder, you know, and you need to be better. Then, you won't be proudful. You'll be humble. Is that what you thought I was going to say? Is that what the Bible says? Sort of, maybe. It does, actually. But here's the problem. That's the worst kind of pride. There is no proud person greater than a Pharisee, right? Who thinks, I'm closer to God. I know the truth. And you look down your nose. You don't know the truth. I tithe. 15% of my income, and you, oh. <laughs> you try to become humble by pursuing God, and what you end up becoming is more proud. Raise your hand if you've ever seen this in others. <laughs> Raise your hand if you've ever seen it in yourself. Here's what Jonathan Edwards says. Knowing God is not enough. This is Jonathan Edwards. Knowing God is not enough because either you would try to live up to God's standard, which will lead you to legalistic pride, or you will feel crushed and insecure by God's standard, which will lead you to self-consumed insecurity. I'll never match up to God. I'm just worthless. God will never love me. I might as well sin. I might as well run from God. See, it's not just about pursuing God, trying harder, doing better, being gooder. And again, religiosity, being religious can work. Like, if, if, let's say, for instance, you, you, you have a lust problem. You say, I'm going to stop lusting. You can, you, can, you can manhandle that. You can say, with God's help and with prayer, I'm going to read my Bible every day, and I'm going to stop looking at pornography. I'm going to stop lusting. 
or, or let's say you're angry. You've got an anger problem. I'm going to manhandle this. I'm going to pray to God more. Next time I get mad, I'm going to count to 10 backwards. I'm going to say a little prayer. Dear Jesus, thank you for, you know, whatever. And I'm going to get better at it. You can do this. But with pride, you can't. You have this pride thing and you try to grab it and you try to pull it down. What ends up happening is you just become more proud. You're proud because you conquered, conquered it. <laughs> or you're proud because you think you don't have to conquer it. <laughs> I'm not proud. I have finally beaten pride. Who says that? I've won. I'm moving on to better things now. I'm humble. <laughs> now the Lord can use me. You can't do that. All right, let's, let's keep going. I love this. You be encouraged. And I want you to feel encouraged and not discouraged. I'm not beating you up because I'm admitting my own faults, but also C.S. Lewis does too. He says, I wish I had got a bit further with humility myself. I love this. You know what? I wish I, I, wish I would have gotten a little further on this path myself. Then I could talk to you more about it. <laughs> I could probably tell you then more about the relief and the comfort of taking the fancy dress off and getting rid of the false self with all its, look at me, and aren't I a good boy, and all its posing and posturing. I wish to get even near it, even for a moment. I believe it's like a drink of cold water to a man in a dry desert. That's interesting. I love that C.S. Lewis said that. It makes me feel better about me. Wish I could tell you more about what humility feels like. <laughs> because I do think that it would be a breath of fresh air, a drink of cold water. So how do we cure it? That's the question. Let me tell you, let's go back to our story. There's something that happened in the story that we might have missed, but was extremely important. And it has to do with these, these robes. The first thing Haman asks Xerxes for is to wear his clothes. And this is extremely important because what this signifies is I want to wear your clothes. And when you clothe me with your clothes, it's like giving me your identity. You're saying you're mine and I'm going to let you represent me. I'm going to give you my robes. It's a big deal. Let the man who the king delights in put on his robe on him so that when he goes out to the world, the world will know and the man will know that you love him so much that you will even give him your identity. I hope you know where I'm going with this. We see the same picture in the story of David and Jonathan. If you remember that story, Jonathan is David's best friend and David has to flee for his life. And at that moment, Jonathan takes off his clothes and gives them to, to David. In a sense saying, look, I'm the prince. I'm the heir apparent, but I'm giving that to you. I want you to be the heir apparent. I, I want you to be king. So David gives him his identity. He says, I want to wear your clothes. You see, the thing is, Haman is proud. And what Haman wants is to be delighted in by the king. He wants the king to give him this ultimate assurance that he is loved, that he is honored, that he is worthy to be named after the king. And he's not asking for something bad, I don't think. I think he's just asking the wrong person. Because you see, Jesus is a better king. And Jesus is a better servant who shows us what humility looks like. And he, listen to this, he doesn't just take off his clothes and give us his clothes, which he does, but he strips himself of his glory and he leaves heaven and he comes down on earth, stripping himself of his glory. He dies a horrific death on a cross and on that cross, they stripped him of his clothes. But more than that, he was stripped of his father's love and of his father's honor and respect. He said, why have you forsaken me? You've forsaken me. And so at that moment, he's stripped of his father's love, 
so that he can take our sin and bury it in the grave and give us what we don't deserve. Jesus is essentially saying to us, I want to clothe you in my righteousness, even though you're a sinful, proud person. One scholar says what we all long for deep down inside is just what Haman longs for. We long for the praise of the praiseworthy. We want someone who's ultimately above us, someone who's ultimately awesomer than us to tell us that we're awesome. Haman wants King Xerxes, who's God, to honor him. And King Xerxes honors Mordecai. You and I want someone who's praiseworthy to give us praise. And Jesus Christ, unbelievable to me, he takes off his clothes and he puts them on us. What more praise can we have? That's amazing. Jesus is the better servant. He shows us what it looks like to think of ourselves less. Not think less of ourselves, but to think of, he didn't think less of himself. Jesus didn't say, oh, well, I'm nobody. (laughs) I'm just the son, you know. (laughs) He says, I'm God and I'm going to not be God, to be a human, to come down here so that I will die on a cross to give my clothes to you, my righteousness to you, even though you're a wicked, sinful person. But you know what? I don't think you're a wicked, sinful person. You're my child. I'm the heir apparent. I'm going to make you an heir apparent. We're all heirs of the kingdom, the Bible says. Jesus left his glory. He even said to his, to his father, his last prayer, he says, Father, give the glory that you've given me. I want to now give it to them. The glory that you gave me from the foundations of the earth, I want to give it to them. We have received glory from Christ. Throughout the scripture, there's all this talk about putting on Jesus. Put on the Lord Jesus. Galatians says, for as you were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. We're putting on his robes and we are being called by his name. Isn't that good news? The Bible calls this the great reversal. And it's amazing. And this story is amazing. Haman walks in. He's on top of the world, right? Second in command, dinner with only the king and the queen. He wants to kill Mordecai, who's just a low servant wearing sackcloth and ashes. And what ends up happening is in the middle of the story, it's reversed. Mordecai gets on the horse. Haman has to drag him through town. In the same sense, we go through a great reversal. Jesus says, I'm leaving my home in heaven, coming down to earth and giving you glory. The glory that you gave me from the foundations of the earth, I now give to them. So how do you conquer humility? Think of yourself less and think of Christ more because he has given you what you're really seeking. You're really seeking the praise of the praiseworthy and he's given it to you. I mean, you cannot have any more praise.